Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, research, and outreach. Welcome to AUKUS Amplified, the podcast series brought to you by the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. Podcast today will highlight an increasingly recognized problem in orthopedics, the underutilization of hip and knee replacements by black patients. It's well-known topic about healthcare, racial and ethnic disparities. Specific to hip and knee replacements, we know that they are some of the most effective and successful procedures out there. These procedures are typically performed for disabling arthritis. Unfortunately, ample data has shown that although the rate of disabling arthritis is similar, Black patients undergo joint replacement procedures at a significantly lower rate compared to white patients. According to the registry data, approximately 70% of total joint replacements are performed in white patients. Only about 5% are black patients, which is clearly disproportionate to U.S. demographics. Today, we will discuss reasons for these disparities and how we can make improvements. Today, we have a distinguished panel, so I'm going to introduce the panel. We have Dr. Linda Suleiman. She's a hip and knee orthopedic surgeon, assistant professor, and assistant dean of medical education at Northwestern, and director of diversity and inclusion at Northwestern uh, School of Medicine. We have Dr. Moibat Adelani. She's also a hip and knee orthopedic specialist in St. Louis, Missouri. She's also a physician coach, which maybe I need at some point, and co-chair of uh, the AUKUS Diversity Advisory Board. We also have Dr. Mary O'Connor. She's got a lot on her uh, resume. We're just going to keep it brief. So she's the former chair of orthopedics at Mayo Clinic. She's also the former director of musculoskeletal care at Yale. She currently started her own company. She's the chief medical officer at Vori Health. And she's also the chair of Movement is Life Caucus, which is an organization aimed at decreasing disparities among women and underserved people. So I think she's pretty qualified also. And then we have Miss uh, Allison Brown. She's a recent hip uh, replacement patient of mine, actually. Uh, we, we're honored to have her here to discuss her experiences, her recovery, any barriers that she had, and her overall experience from the patient point of view. Hopefully it was all good. So thank you to everyone. Anyone who knows me out there, that's probably the most they've ever heard me speak. So let's, it really was. I know. Let's get started. So let's start with our great patient over here, Ms. Brown. She underwent total hip replacement in 2020. So can you tell us about your experiences and why you chose to have surgery? It got to the point really why I chose to have surgery because first I started with a lot of pain and then at some point I started become sort of imbalanced and started ended up walking with the cane. And, um, you know, I was like, okay, something has to be done. So I didn't have insurance at the time, so I went to one of the community health centers here in Orlando, Florida, and, you know, I was told, hey, you know, you've got no cartilage left, you know, in your, um, your right hip, so something has to be done. I said, well, all great and everything, but as you see my situation, I don't have any insurance. So I was then told, well, you know what, we'll try to find something for you and there's supposedly a clinic somewhere in downtown Orlando. We'll get back to you within a week. That never happened. Called, text, emailed, didn't get any response back from the doctor. Went to see a friend and they said, you're in bad shape. We got to figure out how to get you some insurance. So, you know, long story short, introduced me to someone, got some insurance. 
I did get a list of doctors from the community health center, and I started calling around, made a few drive-bys, you know, because since the pandemic had started, a lot of doctors weren't doing any surgeries or they weren't accepting any new patients. And that's how I pretty much found you, Dr. O. <laughs> so I contacted your office and made the appointment, came downtown Orlando, saw you, and I think you said you are a man of very few words. <laughs> and then you, you kind of looked at me and, you know, after the x-rays and you're like, you know, I don't have to tell you, right? <laughs> and I said, but of course, that's when I said, okay, I've got to figure out how to get this done. And I thought it was going to be extremely expensive because I didn't know how the whole insurance, I'm really not, I wasn't born here in America, so I didn't really know how the situations with insurance and copay and all of that kind of stuff went. So I said, okay, well, get back to me with the numbers and and let me know. And then I was told that it was really next to nothing. Really, insurance pretty much covered the majority of the cost. Came in to see you. Then I had to go back to that community health center because that was the original doctor that had saw me um, to get them to sign off so that you could do the surgery. So when I got in, when I went in to see him, I was like, hello. And he was like, well, hello. And, you know, it was almost like we just met for the first time. And I said, well, you know, it's, it's interesting that, you know, you were supposed to get back to me within a week, but now it's like a few months have passed by. And it was, you know, oh, I apologize. And then basically that was it. And I was like, that's great. Just um, kind of sign my paper, sign me off. And so I can get this done. And that was the end of that. Never saw them, never heard from them again. And then I came to see you. My surgery went exactly how you said it would. You came, you told me I was short on one side. You told me that you were going to fix that, that I was going to pretty much be as good as new. And my basic question was, after the surgery, am I going to be able to sit in my yoga position? And you said, certainly. So <laughs> I can say, lo and behold, I sit in my yoga positions and probably do a lot of things that I probably shouldn't be doing, but I do them anyways because I can. <laughs> um, I'm extremely happy in regards to my surgery. I'm happy the way things went. The scar really is minimal. I don't have any real restrictions that I can think of. I ride my bicycle. I walk. I stretch. I can still take my head and put to my knees. I'm good. I'm happy. I sing your praises. I talk about your clinic. I know a lot of seniors and, you know, they tried to talk me out of the surgery, but I said, it's just a shame because I think that you probably had a bad doctor or just didn't get the, the best experience that you could have gotten. And really it's just about research and being able to talk to your doctor and feeling that comfort level. Thank you for sharing that experience. We'll talk about it a little bit more, but I, I do think that a lot of patients will say that the, the communication they have with their doctor and the trust that they have is, is of paramount importance. And especially with the big surgery, like a hip replacement, they really need to trust and feel like they're, they, they have a connection with their doctor. So thank you for sharing that experience. Thank you for sharing that. I think that was really insightful as far as understanding your experience. We talk a lot about and there's some data around, you know, racial discordance amongst patients and physicians. So I can't assume what the first physician, I don't know whether he was a surgeon or not, but do you think it mattered that Obi was a black surgeon? 
I do. I'm not sure how to really, maybe I felt more like of a connection and I kind of felt that he understood where I was coming from, where I still wanted to have some form of quality of life. And, you know, because I said, you know, I like to, to be out. I like to be active. I like to be able to do stuff. So, you know, the less restrictions I have, all the better for me. And he was like, I've got you. And, and I literally felt like he got me. And let me just indicate a lot of prayer, a lot of prayer. I prayed before I went. I prayed while I was there to myself. I prayed when I left. I did a lot of research. I talked to a lot of people that have done the surgery, spoke with family members. A lot of it, too, I was also scared because, you know, I do live in the state of Florida and I don't have any family here. So it was just myself and my daughter at the time. And she was away at university or living in South Florida. So it was sort of like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do when I have the surgery? And they're telling me that pretty much I can't do much for the next two months, at least not drive, like taking away my car or driving privileges, pretty much like taking away my leg. So I was kind of like, but, you know, thank God for, you know, a church and some good friends that I've met since I've been here. They were here for me. Pretty much they just brought everything to my door. You know, Obia, I'd like to ask Darlene, Darlene, you made a comment about people discouraging you from having the surgery. And I'm wondering if that is more a reflection of kind of the community, perhaps, you know, we know that the African-American community has less trust in the medical system. And if you think there was some influence of that lower level of trust in terms of why they were discouraging you from having a surgery that clearly benefited you. Well, the thing is, the people that were discouraged were actually people that had hip replacements, and they were elder. Mm-hmm. And some had really bad experience, I was told, where after their surgery, their hip slipped out, they had to go back in and redo the surgery again. And then there was um, another incident where they got to the point where they were kind of stuck in a particular position and couldn't move. Um, their, their experience was just really bad. And they were people of color, male and female. Well, we certainly don't want that patient. So thank you for sharing that experience. So uh, Dr. Solomon, can you discuss some reasons that we see black patients undergoing less total joint replacement? I know you've done some research on this. I think the reason why Black patients may not utilize or underutilize total joint arthroplasty, I think it's a very complex topic. And I know Mary and I have had these discussions, Muivat, in the past. We've kind of talked about our own patient experiences. You know, what I'm always surprised by outside of just the data and the research in my own practice is the number of patients I've seen with significant deformities, terrible functional scores, on narcotics, who were never even offered the surgery. And coming to an orthopedic surgeon, I wasn't their first orthopedic surgeon that had been managing them. And so I do believe the thing that we haven't been able to study is the disproportionate number of non-Black total joint surgeons and the data that we know that's been done on racial concordance And I think the education of non-Black surgeons, right, on being able to effectively communicate 
and make patients who do not look like them more comfortable to make that decision. Because I think, you know, being at least me, I identify as a black woman, I have to feel like there's a level of trust with my physician. And that's how I choose my physicians now and who take care of me and my family members. And I think all of us have had some sort of experience where it was very clear that there was some bias in the interaction or because of some of the medical comorbidities that we see associated, diabetes, hypertension, in our Black population, it takes more effort for us on the surgeon side to optimize patients, right? And so I think it's such a complex topic. From what I see, I think there's what we can't study, which is the interaction between surgeons and patients. And then there's the side of having to build that really communication and that trust with our patients, which may take more time and more effort to do so. Yeah, it is a complex topic. And, and it's good that we're, we're paying a lot more attention to it because as you're saying, it's going to take a few years for us to really kind of hone in on what the issue is in order to improve it. Dr. O'Connor, do you have anything to add to this? Well, I was with you, although when you said it's going to take us a few years, internally, I was like, well, we just shouldn't accept that. I mean, we have to accelerate the changes because we are here to take care of patients. And that means providing good care to all patients. So it's really frustrating for all of us and particularly frustrating for patients, you know, like Darlene that are not getting the same quality of care or access to specialty services. And I agree completely with Linda. This is a really complex problem. And Orthopedic surgeons cannot be expected to solve social determinants of health, right? But there is a lot that we can do to improve the equity of care that we provide to all our patients. Looking at our own processes, our teams, biases that we have, and, you know, bias is part of the human condition. So we all have it. And it's working to make sure that we can mitigate those biases to the best of our ability that will allow us to provide better care of patients. But fundamentally, at the end of the day, I think that it's really about listening to patients and really working on developing that trusting relationship with them. Because I think it's easier for the trusting relationship to develop when there's race, ethnicity, gender concordance with the patient and the surgeon. But I don't think that's a requirement. Completely agree. Completely agree. And you, you touched on implicit bias, and I want to discuss that a little bit more. Dr. Adelani, can you kind of discuss uh, what implicit bias is for our audience and, and what role it plays in the disparities we see in hip and knee replacements? In general, implicit bias is the assumptions, the conclusions that we make very quickly that help us make quick judgments about people, about situations, etc. As Mary alluded to, we all have them. Uh, the question becomes, how do they impact our work? And particularly in arthroplasty, I think we all can fall into the trap of trying to decide who is a good, worthy, deserving surgical candidate and who isn't very, very quickly, right? So I think that's where implicit bias kind of falls into what we do. And uh, Ms. Brown, in your quest to have your hip fixed, and you saw another doctor 
And I don't know if you saw any other specialists. Did you ever feel like there was some kind of an implicit bias or that you weren't being taken as seriously for certain reasons? Um, certainly, I didn't really feel that there was a real urgency. Like they saw that I needed the assistance, but it was sort of like, you know what, we'll kind of push her to the side or, you know, we'll let the nurses figure that out and make a few phone calls. And, you know, if we hear back, then fine. If not, it is what it is. That, that's pretty much how I felt and how I was dealt with. So just, just not feeling that your concerns were taken as seriously or as urgent. Oh, of course not. I mean, when you see me walking in and I'm walking with the cane and I could barely even stand up, I mean, they asked me to stand on a scale and I couldn't even stand on the scale. I remember. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember. <laughs> um, so uh, Dr. O'Connor, I recently listened to a podcast uh, that you were on discussing access to healthcare. And I know this, these are all very complex issues we could talk about for hours and hours and hours, but you know we, we don't have too long to talk about it. But how do access issues affect the utilization of hip and knee replacement surgeries? And what things do you think can be done to improve that? So again, it's a complex issue, but Ms. Darlene started off her story by talking about how she didn't have medical insurance in the beginning. So certainly having no insurance is a challenge. And I should preface that I don't expect surgeons to work for free and that people have worked very hard to get where they are. And I think surgeons are well compensated and should be well compensated for the work that they do. I also happen to think that we can each give a little bit more to take care of underserved members of our communities. But leaving that aside, the issue is really one of how insurance coverage biases surgeons and providers in terms of access to specialty care. And we've done, there's lots of research on this. Dan Wisney and I did a nice little study looking at the orthopedic urgent care centers in the state of Connecticut. And when I was at Yale and whether they accepted Medicaid insurance and a huge number of them did not. Most of them did not. Some of them would see Medicaid patients only if they were from their local community. And that was still better than the ones that flat out refused to see any patient with Medicaid. So we have the issue of kind of the insurance biopsy as the criteria for whether an, an orthopedic surgeon is going to see a patient who clearly needs the skills and training that we have in order to help them, right? There's nobody else that could help someone like Darlene at that moment in her medical journey. So addressing the issues of bias related to type of insurance through a multi-prong approach, which includes in my mind, changing the reimbursement so that the reimbursement to physicians for seeing patients with Medicaid, for example, is a reasonable and fair payment will help decrease the stigma that we attach to those patients, right? Because we say, well, if you have Medicaid, then you must be poor. And if you're poor, you must have all kinds of other negative things that we associate with someone being poor, lack of education, lack of, which may absolutely not be true right? 
but we have stereotypes that then come into the conversation. So I think the issue of bias that we carry related to the type of medical insurance that patients has is really an issue in terms of the disparities that we see in utilization of joint replacement. I would add to that though, that it's not the only one, right? Like Linda kind of alluded to patients who have seen orthopedic surgeons that have not had the same level of care. And I think when we talk about access to care, there's the objective, which is, can we get them in the door? But then there's the more subtle parts of once they're in the door, do they have equal access to information? Do they have equal access to compassion? Do they have equal access to being heard? And I think that's the other big part of the problem is even if the patient gets in the door, if they are judged as someone that is not worthy of help, then it doesn't really matter that they were in the door. They still didn't get access to what they needed. And then these patients get labeled as non-compliant, right? How many times have we heard that term of non-compliance are not going to be non-compliant. Mary, I think what you're highlighting also is just this whole social determinants of health, right? You know, to have a successful surgery, you need to be able to have transportation, right, to get to PT. So Ms. Brown alluded to the fact that she, she can't not drive. Who's going to help her in this post-operative period if she just has her daughter? And then we you know, label these patients as like, okay, well, they didn't take their meds and they didn't go to PT, you know, they're not compliant. Well, they may not have had the copay to pay for that medication, that opioid that we need post-operatively or whatever it may be, or they may not have a ride to PT post-operatively and now their knee is stiff at three, four weeks. And so I think it's, we have to, I think, push to a conversation to look at, you know, how can we make this patient's surgery successful instead of just labeling patients as, you know, they're not going to do well, so here's another injection. I think we've been taking a step back and we got to stop seeing ourselves as just surgery salesmen, right? My job is to listen to this patient and listen for understanding, understand what their goals are. Sometimes they don't want to have surgery. As long as they've had the appropriate information, the ability to have an open conversation about all of their options, it's actually okay if they choose not to have surgery, but that choice has to be an informed choice. It can't be because it was denied to them. So I think we really have to focus on, to your point, the success of the patient, of which surgery may be part of that, but maybe surgery isn't part of that. And I think that we've got to look at the overall system that we work in as part of the problem, right? We get paid to do surgery and we get paid to do more surgeries. And that is why you kind of have this survivor almost, the survivor-like competition of trying to weed out surgery or surgical candidates from non-surgical candidates when really we need to be taking care of the patient that's in front of us. Maybe they're a candidate for surgery right now. Maybe they need a little help to become a surgery candidate. Maybe they don't want to have surgery yet. And maybe they don't want to have surgery ever. That's not for us to judge. Our job our vested interest should be trying to give that patient what they need at the right time and not trying to decide whether they're worthy of my time. That was beautifully said, Moibot. I agree with you completely. And Linda, your prior comments, we focus on the IHI approach of what matters to you, the patient, not just what is the matter with you, right? And so when we try to focus on what matters to the patient, we're really trying to take into account their values and their goals. 
not just, okay, you have knee pain or hip pain, I could do a joint replacement surgery, which may help you. But again, as you said, Moibot might not be what they're interested in and what they want, which now can always do a deeper dive on, you know, why does the patient have resistance to an operation that we believe for someone who's severely arthritic and very functionally compromised would help them? But that requires, again, developing that trusting relationship with the patient so that they believe that you are really there as their advocate and you are there to try and do the best for them that you can, which also means that we have to respect their decisions, as, which was your point, and I agree completely. You know, another thing, and, I, and I'm not going to belabor this, I agree with all, all of those points in terms of access and a topic that's dear to me, but it's a long topic and we don't have to get into, into it is diversifying our orthopedic workforce is also going to help us in terms of access. We know that Black physicians and Black orthopedists are more likely to work in uh, underserved communities and Black communities. And if we can train more, the percentage of Black orthopedic surgeons is I think at this point, 2% or less. And if we can increase the Black orthopedic workforce to reflect our demographics, then I think that that can also help with access and communication with patients and, and the trust issue as well. But that's a long topic that, that we don't have to dive too deeply into. We've defined a lot of the problem here. We've talked about a lot of the problems. Dr. O'Connor, what other things do you think need to be added to our current efforts? And what are some current initiatives that you think are effective? Well, I think the fundamental problem with our healthcare system is related to the way healthcare system entities and clinicians are paid. It comes down to it's always about the money. And I say that with the full appreciation that you need to make money to keep your doors open. So, my favorite Mayo Clinic quote, Sister Generose the last nun administrator at St. Mary's Hospital. So her famous quote is, no margin, no mission. But people will forget the second half of her quote, which is no mission, no need for margin. So you have to make money in healthcare to keep your doors open. It's not evil to make money in healthcare, but we have to remember why are we trying to make a margin to keep our doors open? It's to serve the patients in our communities. And when we have health systems that make their margin based on basically surgery, advanced imaging, and procedures, because that is how every health system in this country makes their margin, then we see, I would say, the bias towards promoting surgical procedures, advanced imaging, when we know that they're overutilized. So I'll give you one stat that is, I think, so impactful. So Walmart's created their spine centers of excellence. They send their uh, member who's seen a spine surgeon in the local community who has recommended spine surgery. That patient and uh, a companion get to go to a spine center of excellence. Walmart pays their expenses to go. They're evaluated there. 50% of the time that spine center of excellence surgeon says, no, you should not have surgery. That is a staggering fact. So this just highlights the fact that we have a significant amount of inappropriate surgeries that are happening. And okay, I can you know talk about the spine surgeons and how bad they are with inappropriate surgeries, but on the joint replacement side, 
that number for total knees can range, you know, in the 20 to 30% range. So it's not like our team is immune to this. And we certainly have opportunities to improve. But the motivation for surgeons to do surgery is very strong. Most systems may repay the surgeon based on their volume, or at least there's some metric related to the number of cases that you do that is then used to reflect on your value as a member of that surgical department or surgical team, as opposed to what Moibot was referring to, which is she's there to make sure the patient gets the right care at the right time, right? Regardless of what that kind of care is. So I think fundamentally the payment model drives a lot of the disparity, a lot of behavior that is less attractive, and it drives us to not offer surgery to appropriate patients who have poorer payers, have less lucrative insurance, potentially overutilize surgery for those patients that have commercial insurance, where the hospital and the surgeon will be better reimbursed. So the the money factor comes in and feeds into biases that, again, are very complex. And to add to that, you know, the attempted solutions to some of these problems, some of the Medicare quality-based initiatives, bundled payments, uh, readmission penalties, also disproportionately punish people who take care of patients that are deemed higher risk. So you kind of have a double-edged sword there where so-called, you know, cherry picking and lemon dropping can occur. Or even if it's not at the Medicare level, even if it's just at your hospital level, right? Like you get penalized for a higher infection rate or a higher readmission rate, then your goal is going to try to weed out patients that you perceive to be higher risk for those things. The problem comes when you make those perceptions based on race. And it's also, you know, we're seeing insurers creating real hard stops to surgical authorization based on BMI. And we know that that is going to disproportionately impact women and individuals of color where, you know, BMIs are traditionally higher than in the white male population. And it would be one thing if we had systems in place that would really support that individual with a a high BMI, you know, over 38 or over 40 to get support that they need to lower their weight because that level of weight, of course, is very unhealthy for anyone. We get that. But these patients don't have the support services that they need to make those changes. Thank you for mentioning that, Mary, when you spoke about the, the weight and so forth. I do know of a friend of mine that have many different issues. And part of it, when he said he had gone into, don't really to kind of drift off topic, to get a dietitian, they kind of just came in, gave him a little list, and then disappeared. So there was no one there to kind of like sit back and kind of go over the plan with them and to follow up with them to make sure that he was actually sticking to the plan. And he said that was one of the reasons why it was very hard for him to lose weight or to to keep the weight off because it was just so much easier for him to get the unhealthy food and just to continue to eat the way that he normally ate. You know, Obi, 
I'd like to, I'll make a comment and then I'm going to, I've been talking a lot. We have so many wonderful people on the panel, but in our Movement is Life Operation Change Program, which is a community-based program, we typically will have 40 women. They have knee pain and some other comorbidity, typically obesity, but they may also have hypertension or diabetes. And we've run many of these programs now, 18 weeks, three hours a week. So three hours together. The first week is some kind of educational session where we might have a session on diabetes or depression or something. The second hour is movement. That could be something very easy like light yoga or line dancing. Uh, And the third hour is motivational interviewing where the women break up into smaller groups led by a motivational interviewer for them to try and really understand what their personal barriers are to making change. Because while we fully understand that there are impacts to our health and wellness based on our environment and our genetics and you know other social determinants, individual behavior choice is still the dominant driver, okay? So how can we support these women to make better health choices? And we studied our results and I'm very proud to share, you know, that these women improved their walking speed by 18% over that time period. No drugs, no doctor visits, no injections in their knees, but more importantly, their sense of hopelessness went from like 70% down to 30%. I mean, this dramatic change in their mental, spiritual outlook. And we asked them what was so impactful about the program. What did they like best? I thought it would be the motivational interviewing because that was really the thing that we added that was different. But what they said was, it was basically the community of women that we created because they gained their strength to make the the behavioral change from the other women in the program. And that's like, that was an aha moment for me. It's like, we need to move wellness into communities where people can support each other. This isn't a new model. Alcoholics Anonymous and Weight Watchers have used this model forever, but we don't use it in healthcare. Why not? Because we're not a healthcare system. We're a sick care system. And we need to start embracing the fact that we are and should be a sick care system and a well care system should be moved into the community. I agree with all that. Yeah, that's very impactful. Just taking an active approach in the patient's healthcare can change everything. And I agree with that. I mean, the patients who we see and often are are Black patients, when we just tell them lose weight, you can't have a hip or knee replaced, that's meaningless. That does nothing for the patient. But when you take an active approach, give them referrals, give them a goal, see them back continuously and keep checking on them, that kind of active approach is what's needed. So a lot of good efforts. So I want to go back to Ms. Brown, and we're going to kind of start wrapping this up a little bit. Ms. Brown, so what advice would you give to patients suffering from knee or hip arthritis? And on top of that, this is a twofold question. What advice would you give to surgeons in terms of communicating with them and getting them to learn and, and maybe undergo hip or knee replacement or some kind of active treatment? The advice I would give is to do your research and speak to as many doctors you need to. And hopefully that you will have some support if it's not family, church, or some form of community base, because you do need that support outside because 
that helps you with the healing process when you do decide to make that decision to get that surgery done. Um, in regards to your second question with the doctors, just be a little bit compassionate. And, you know, for myself, I didn't like the fact that every time I went to see someone, they were always trying to push medication on me. And I don't take pills. <laughs> I don't take, you know, <laughs> you know, because I was like, I'm good. I mean, I know that I'm in a lot of pain, but I have to say during my entire process, pretty much the only time I took medication was after the surgery because I refused to take any form of medication. And I still have that bunch of oxycodone still sitting around two years later. <laughs> but a lot of people have a lot of fear and for many different reasons. And there is that mistrust because sometimes you feel that doctors are sort of like over-exaggerating your condition because they want to do the surgery because they know that they're going to get paid every time they make an incision. And for me, that's always in the back of my head, like, is this absolutely necessary? Do I have to get this done? And if not, I would prefer not to. So that's a lot of things that you kind of have to ask, okay, well, if you're apprehensive, why are you apprehensive in not getting this surgery done? You know, what's the problem that's going on? Is it insurance? Is it other monetary issues? Is it how are you going to take care of yourself after? There's, there's so many different factors. And even the factor of the therapy. I mean, after I got my surgery done, I didn't get anyone to come to my home until like maybe almost a week after my surgery. I don't know what kind of happened there, but it was just an ongoing issue. But because I'm so persistent, I just kept calling, harassing the insurance company. And you remember I told you that I refused to go to a facility that they're going to have to come in home and do my therapy in home and I don't care. So that happened when it got to the point where they were indicating that they were going to cut off the therapy. And I was like, uh, no, that's not going to happen because I still need you said that this is the amount I'm supposed to get. This is what the insurance covers. And I'm going to get every single therapy session that I need until I am comfortable. And that's what happened. I had to fight for it. But for those poor senior citizens that cannot spend the time on the phone for like an hour, an hour and a half trying to get through to these insurance companies so that you can get someone to advocate for you. It's extremely frustrating. It was extremely frustrating. And, and I don't think I'm that much senior, but you know, <laughs> just ask questions, ask them how they're doing. And thanks for sharing that. And it's important for surgeons to be advocates for their patients and take an active approach. You know, we you know, once we get busy as surgeons, we're, we feel like we're doing so many surgeries, but, but you can never lose that personal touch. And that's what makes all the difference. And so we're going to just have some closing comments by each of our panelists. So, you know, we've discussed everything. We've discussed solutions. So just some closing comments by each panelist. So how about that, Moibat? I think that, you know, the bottom line is we have to see all of our patients, including the patients that are not like us, as other human beings. And with that naturally will come compassion and hopefully also curiosity, right? A lot of times patients make decisions or make choices that I don't clearly understand. And I have, as a physician, have to be curious about why they're doing that. 
not overbearing. My goal isn't always to change their mind. It's just to understand where they're coming from. Sometimes they're coming from a place of misinformation or different information than I might give. Sometimes they're actually coming from a place of trauma. As Ms. Brown explained, you know, before she got to see Obi, she saw other physicians. And that experience for many of our patients is a traumatic one. And we have to be able to understand that context when we're talking to a patient at any given moment. So just remain curious, remain compassionate, take care of the whole patient, and don't focus on just trying to sell surgery. Uh, Linda, any closing comments? I think it's really important just to highlight when we see these limitations, whether it's BMI or access related issues, as far as transportation or PT, taking some time to really look at what resources you have in your community, I think goes a long way. We've partnered with several churches, community centers who provide rides and transportation. There's one physical therapy company that's around the state that if they are below a certain income threshold, they provide that transportation to and from their homes. There's significant weight loss centers and nutritionists but it's a matter of giving the information and allowing this patient to be able to help themselves, right? But you helping them get to the time point of being able to have a hip or knee replacement. And I think it takes a lot on the surgeon to really invest the time to find the resources, but your practice will be getting so much busier because you're going to get referrals. You're going to get more patients wanting to come see you. So patients who have significant arthritis that may not have the BMI or the diabetes control, they get a return appointment in three, four months. They get to see me in three to four months to check in. Where are we? And it sets that goal. And I think it just allows that trust in the patient physician relationship. So, you know, the only advice I have is that if we're going to overcome some of these barriers, the pressures on the surgeon to find the resources to provide this for our patients. I think it's why we became doctors. It's why we became surgeons. It's why we do total hips and knees. Thank you. Thank you very much. I uh, agree with all of that. Mary? Well, Linda and Moibot had excellent comments. I agree with everything they said. I think what I would add is I feel it is our professional responsibility our moral obligation to our patients, though we are also engaged on the policy front because it's policies that will drive payment models that promote cherry picking and lemon dropping. And a lot of times the people that are really engaged in creating these policies and approaches, I I don't think they're intentionally trying to promote disparities but they really don't understand what is happening on the level of the surgeon or doctor patient or health system where there is this subtle messaging that you shouldn't do surgery on that really complex patient because they're going to take more resources and it's going to negatively financially impact your bundle, for example. So I think we're the ones that have to help carry the voice of the patient into those conversations. So I would just encourage each of us to be as educated as we can be and share our passion for quality access care for all our patients. Thank you. And that policy thing, it's a huge topic. I honestly think that that maybe should be another topic that we discuss at some point because policy is everything, whether it be insurance and 
access and, and all these things kind of come back to policy. And, and I agree, a lot of the people who are, who are making these policies and who are advocating for our patients and our profession don't really put these disparities and, and access at the forefront of things. So I think that that should be another big topic that we discuss at some point. But thank you to my distinguished guests. This has been a great panel. I love being the least smart person on the panel. That makes me feel great. A lot of smart people around me, and I love to learn from all of these smart people. And of course, thank you to Ms. Brown, our great patient. I couldn't have chosen a better patient. I remember in 2020, after your surgery, and you were doing well. The last thing you said to me was, if you ever need anything, let me know. And I remembered it. And you didn't think I was going to follow up, but I did. So, you know, and I really appreciate it. So thank you all for everything. Thank you all for listening. And thank you to AUKUS for letting us use this platform. And uh, hopefully we'll have some more discussions in the near future. As we discussed earlier, one of the best ways to reduce disparities is to increase the diversity of joint replacement surgeons. On that note, I do want to promote the AUKUS Diversity Advisory Board Mentoring Program. This is very important. This program will match trainees and joint replacement surgeons early in their career with surgeons more established in their career who will serve as mentors. Young surgeons can seek guidance on topics ranging from fellowship applications, private practice advice, academic promotion, complex cases, and ways to be involved in their community. We are recruiting mentors and mentees with the plan to launch this program in September of 2022. Please visit the Oculus website to learn more. This is extremely important and can go a long way in reducing disparities in joint placements. Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit AUKUS.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, investigate, and perform humanitarian outreach in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.